since 1982. This is a special episode of the Player Missile Podcast, and I'm Rob, your host. This is an episode about the 5200 and how it relates to the Atari 8-bit computers that we normally cover in this podcast. This is going to be unusual in several ways, and one way is I'm going to cover a lot of time in this single episode. You know, most of the episodes I'll cover like a month and do all the magazine articles that are interesting in that month of time. In this one, I'm going to cover the 5200 as it showed up in magazines in 1982. I'll have subsequent episodes about 1983 and 1984, and look at all the magazine coverage that it got across a bunch of different magazines, uh, including magazines that I don't normally cover. In fact, most of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about are magazines that you won't have heard about on this podcast before. So I'll do some introduction of those magazines, as well as 5200-specific coverage from magazines that I normally talk about. I'm also going to talk about the 8-bit coverage that I find in these magazines that I don't normally talk about. So there's a lot of different unusual things about this episode. There'll be a lot of 8-bit coverage as well. So if you feel like you don't have enough experience with the 5200 to enjoy listening to this podcast, I would suggest maybe going ahead and listening to the podcast because there's a lot of 8-bit stuff that I'm going to tie into these magazines that I don't normally cover. And we'll learn about some of the games that originally started on the 5200 that were ported either you know purposely by the companies or by hackers to get onto the 8-bits. You know, they, they came from the 5200. Another difference is that I'm not going to change my focus to become a 5200 podcast. There are already two 5200 podcasts out there, the Atari 5200 podcast and the Atari 5200 Super Community podcast. So I'm not going to compete with them. But yeah, I'm not going to get into the 5200 business. This is just a kind of enjoying looking around at some of these other magazines that I don't normally cover. So to this set of three 5200 episodes before I get back to my regular podcast coverage, I'm splitting it up into three episodes because I'm, I have a lot of magazines to go through and it's just going to be an insanely long episode if I try to do it all at once. But you'll find there's a lot of 8-bit coverage here as well and a lot of interesting articles that I found in some of these magazines that I hadn't really looked at before. So join me, won't you, as we take this slight diversion into the 5200 and find out that it's really a lot like the 8-bits while simultaneously being very different. Let us begin with a little bit of a history of the 5200. In 1977, just after the 2600 was released, you know, the engineers, Joe DeCure, Jay Miner, and, and company had talked about the lifespan of the 2600 being only a couple of years. And so they figured they had to work on a follow-up, you know, pretty immediately. So in early 77, they began with the project's codename Colleen and Candy. And a lot of this history is coming from the book Business is Fun by Marty Goldberg and the late Kurt Vandell. There's other histories on the net, of course, but that's, this is kind of like the, the definitive research. And it's one that I've gone back to most of the time for my, my research on Atari history itself. We know that Candy morphed into the 400 and Colleen morphed into the 800. And neither of those was a direct replacement for the VCS like the 5200 was eventually designed to be. And so neither Colleen nor Candy became the 5200. There's certainly reports in Businesses Fun that the initial design for the 400 was without a keyboard and even the keyboard being available but plugged into joystick ports 3 and 4. But the early project designs for Candy do say that it was going to be able to play like educational stuff like the Dorset educational series, uh, you know, language stuff. But they said the serious work machine was going to be Colleen. They both still were going to be compatible with each other but that the serious work would be done on the Colleen and then the game-playing stuff would be more designed for the candy. Early in 1979, they went with the decision to have the membrane keyboard, and so this is when it really starts to look like the 400, and they included that keyboard in order for it to be able to play complex games, you know, like Star Raiders. 
But this decision to turn it into kind of like this mini computer essentially doomed it to not be a replacement for the VCS. And to quote from Business's Fun, With that, the first step towards the demise of Atari's domination in the console market had been taken. The 400 and 800 that we know and love were released in 1979, and it wasn't until 1981 that a real effort ramped up to replace the VCS with something newer. And there are rumors of something called the Atari 3200, which in various places is cited to be like having something with a 10-bit processor, kind of like the Intellivision did. It's mentioned briefly in Business's Fun, but no specifics really on the processor other than it was going to have um, you know, more enhanced chips around it. Various places have said that the 3200 was difficult to program, but nothing other than schematics has really been unearthed. And I guess there's a few mock-ups of you know physical cases and joystick designs that exist. And I'll I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, like a Wayback Machine version of AtariMuseum.com, which is the late current Vendell's old website that apparently has been removed, in which it shows a picture of the 3200 um, and some of the like additional information known about it. But this is really when the 5200 gets its start. It's initially called the Atari Video System X, or PAM, the personal arcade machine, before it ends up getting called the 5200. Its purpose was not to directly replace the VCS either, because they still regarded it as a cash cow, according to Business's Fun, so they wanted to target high-end game players. And the initial design documents show that it was clearly designed to use the hardware from the 400-800, except for the joysticks, which were the 360-degree omnidirectional controllers with the keyboard and two separate triggers. So very early on, the 5200 was realized to what it actually ended up becoming. The case design is interesting as well. The VCS had, you know, the wood grain paneling, kind of very 70s look, and they wanted to get away from that. In Business is Fun, they say that the Atari designers were big fans of, like, Bang & Olufsen sort of high-end stereo products. And they wanted the 5200 with its, you know, glossy, sleek plastic and brushed aluminum to fit right into this, you know, high-end stereo system look. Business is Fun goes into a lot of detail about how there was a lot of market research that went into this. And one of the big complaints was people having to go to the TV and switching a box on the back of the TV in order to change from, you know, watching over-the-air television to playing your game. And so one of the big innovations of the first version of the 5200 was this combination power supply and TV switch box. So once you turn on the 5200, it automatically switches the TV over. And I guess this turned out to be a bit of an albatross because the second version of the 5200 kind of went back to separate power cords and TV cables. But if we want to talk about the biggest albatross, we have to talk about the joysticks. In theory, they're quite advanced, you know, omnidirectional control, potentiometer-based joysticks rather than the the switch-based of the VCS and the 400-800. The problem was that they weren't self-centering, relying on a rubber boot to kind of push the joystick back. And according to Businesses Fun, the initial design was so flawed that a bunch of engineers like pleaded and signed memos and stuff to not release the 5200 with these version joysticks, but that marketing wouldn't listen and that Atari figured they could always release a fix or an upgrade. They say the uh, later versions of the 5200 used thicker boots to almost become self-centering, but not quite. 5200 fans say the joysticks aren't that bad, and of course 5200 detractors say they're terrible. And here's where I say that I've played a 5200 like once or twice, you know, just a show. And so I don't have any real experience with the joysticks, not maybe the joysticks. I know there's a bunch of fixes and other improved joysticks that are in the aftermarket. So I didn't even know if I was using an original joystick when I played. But if you bring up the 5200 to anybody sort of knowledgeable in the classic arcade scene, they will inevitably bring up the joysticks as the sort of, you know, Marmite thing about the system. You either love them or you hate them. 
Before we get on to the technical specifications of the 5200 itself, there's two more marketing things we have to talk about. One is the idea that this is not new hardware. You know, it's based on the chips from the 400 and 800. And so marketing's idea apparently was that it was going to be a software revolution, that the games designed purposely for the 5200 were going to be you know, of much sort of higher quality than the stuff that was coming out for the 8-bit computers. And so that brings up the second marketing decision that just seems unfathomable now, is the choice of Super Breakout as the pack-in game. Businesses Fund uses the derisively uh, market department and their wisdom recommended that the pack-in game being be a family-friendly game. This is months after the ColecoVision had been released, including Donkey Kong as its pack-in game. So the idea that Super Breakout would be comparable to Donkey Kong is a pretty stunning decision. People have theorized that they didn't want to cannibalize sales of the Pac-Man cartridge, thinking they could make money that way. You know, people would buy the 5200 and then Pac-Man separately. But it seemed like, much like Space Invaders drove sales of the VCS, that's what they intended for the 5200. However, with ColecoVision packing in Donkey Kong, that was enough to have people buy the ColecoVision system itself. And then once they have the ColecoVision system, it's not like they're going to buy a whole other system. They're just going to be locked into the ColecoVision ecosystem. So as we in the Atari community are fond of saying, uh, Atari marketing killed the 5200 even before it had a chance for success. And that's hyperbole to some extent, of course. But, you know, I think there's some grain of truth to that. At its release, you know, it's kind of like the November 1982 timeframe. Businesses Fund says these were the launch titles available. So Centipede, Defender, Galaxian, Missile Command, Pac-Man, Kicks, Real Sports Baseball, Football, and Soccer, Space Invaders, and Star Raiders. The book says this is a problem because while these are all decent titles, they're all kind of based on stuff that's already out there for the 400 and 800, and that while they compete favorably against the Intellivision, the ColecoVision essentially blindsided them, and the quality of arcade ports available on the ColecoVision exceed anything that is available here, in terms of recently released games in the arcade anyway. Additionally, the book theorizes that had the 2600 adapter cartridge been ready to go right out of the gate, it would have been a different story, but apparently there was an electrical flaw in the initial release of the 5200 and the cartridge adapter that prevented it from being used without like frying the, the cartridge or the console. So it wasn't until a subsequent release of the 5200 motherboard that the 2600 adapter cartridge actually could work, and so it wasn't well until 1983 until that it was available even. And by that time, you know, we're starting to get into the crash, the video game crash, and the 5200 would never recover. Atari announced that on May 21st, 1984, the 5200 was no longer in production. Atari said they were going to sell off the remaining inventory, and they planned to support the 5200 for a while. It was unclear as to how long they planned to. But when Jack Trammell bought the company, he apparently killed any remaining 5200 support. There's an interesting story I'll link to in the show notes about Gremlins, which is said to be the last official release on the 5200 all the way in 1986. Apparently it was completed in 1984 and was sent to cartridge production like the day before Jack Trammell bought the company. And once he found out about it, he killed all the 5200 stuff. But despite that, several thousand copies of Gremlins had actually been made and packaged. He stuffed them in a warehouse, and then eventually, apparently, Steven Spielberg found out about the game being, you know, existing. Spielberg offered to buy it and release it himself, but Trammell refused. And then apparently, according to the Atari Protos website, rather than just throwing them away, they decided to just release all this stuff to sell it in 1986 without much fanfare or promotion. And it and the last remaining 5200 stuff that they had in their warehouses were finally sold. So it appears really that the 5200 died along with Atari Inc. 
in July of 1984 when Jack Trammell bought the company. Let's talk about the system itself. What is this beast? The initial design had four controller ports. Apparently it was only released with two joysticks. I guess you could buy, you know, additional ones. You could also buy a trackball. The joysticks, of course, had the analog stick, two fire buttons, like two on each side, so you could use it with either hand. It had a 12-key numeric keypad with a star and a hash on the on the keypad, so kind of like a, a lot like a phone keypad, actually. And above the joystick, it's had three buttons, start, pause, and reset. We already talked a little bit about the TV switch box, which also had the power supply, so there's only one cable that you had to plug into the initial release of the 5200. The second release of the hardware had only two controller ports, and then it had a separate power supply and like non-auto-switching TV switch box. The second hardware revision also had the changes to the cartridge port that allowed the 2600 adapter to work. Internally, we have all the same chips that are in the 8-bit computers, except there's no expansion, there's no SIO, there's no parallel bus, there's no monitor out, and there's no keyboard, of course. I'm going to summarize the hardware differences using an article from Analog, and this is the only time I'm going to go out of order. From after this, I'm going to start covering the magazine stuff starting in, you know, early 1982 uh, chronologically. So this is the the time I'm going to go, like, not stick to that. So this is from Analog Computing issue number 15. It's the January 1984 issue, and the article is Transporting Atari Computer Programs to the 5200. This is like Klaus Buchholz. He begins by saying, when Atari designed the 5200 Super System as a successor to the aging 2600 VCS, they made use of the -the state-of-the-art hardware they put in their 400-800 home computers. As a result, the systems are quite similar. The differences are great enough, however, that transporting programs from one system to the other requires some effort. He says the 5200 is a single-board machine, four controller jacks, cartridge slot, an I.O. expansion connector, and a power-slash-RF cable. Let me talk about the I.O. port first. He says that the existence of this port implies that Atari was initially planning to be able to expand the 5200 to have, you know, more capabilities. But I can't find out where this port was ever used. He said Pokey's serial I.O. lines are wired up to this port. So theoretically, I guess, there could be some adapter that would take S.I.O. But yeah, again, I can't see where this was ever used or taken advantage of. If we get back to the chips, the CPU is the 6502C, which is the same as used in the XL series. And this differs from the one used in the 400-800 in that this version of the 6502 doesn't need any extra hardware in order to let Antic take over the system bus. But programmatically, it's identical to the regular 6502 in the 400-800. The 5200 has 16K of RAM, so from page 0 to page 3F, the first 16K are populated with RAM. And he says the 5200 OS reserves locations 0 through hex 18 in the 0 page, and then in page 2, hex 200 through hex 21B for shadows and RAM vectors, he says. And then, of course, page 1 is reserved for the 6502 stack. Everything else is fair game. Antic, the same old Antic, and it locates it's located in the same place, page D4, and it says the 5200 has no system reset key, so bit 5 of NMIST is useless and the 5200's interrupt handler ignores it. And here's where we're starting to get some differences. The GTIA is there, but instead of being in page D0, as it is normally, it's in page C0. And this, coupled with Pokey, residing at page EB in the 5200 as opposed to page D2, provides the main reason for incompatibility. Now, why they chose to move those chips around in memory is a bit of an open question. I mean, it's been theorized that the home computer division and the video game division were, you know, enough at odds that they didn't want, you know, cross-pollination. They didn't want to make it easy. They didn't want to lose control of the market. I mean, obviously, again, we get into marketing. It's a bunch of dumb marketing decisions. 
But at any rate, that's the reality. And so those things are in different spots. And so transporting programs from one place to another involves, you know, changing all the places that you address, you know, the GTIA or the pokey for the controller, reading the controller stuff. And the controllers, I suppose, are another incompatibility. They show up as paddles, so each joystick shows up as two paddles, which by itself is not a problem because you can read paddles on the 8-bit hardware as well as you can on the 5200. But a game that is expecting paddle control for the you know joystick movement is going to have to have some additional logic like brought into it in order to handle the difference of difference in controllers. And then because it doesn't have a keyboard, you got to deal with reading the keypad codes. And apparently, you can only read one keyboard controller at a time. So you got to set a flag indicating which keypad you want to read. And then once you read that, you can figure out which of the keypad codes is being pressed on that particular controller. The ROM is also much changed. It's only 2K of ROM, of which half of that is the character set. And so ROM is really very minimalistic. It just initializes the system to do um, like the initial boot time display. And then it sets up the interrupts. And then it has a, a apparently a little vertical blank that maintains like all the shadow registers and stuff. And that's really it. It's super small. So in the article here, he has a complete listing of all the like shadow RAM locations that the OS uses. And that's really, it's a listing of only like 25 things. That's it. So if you write 5200 software, you're pretty much on your own. The only thing it really has shadow registers for are the display list addresses, the DMACTL register, the color registers, the paddle registers, and then the vertical blank and display list interrupt routines. It has interrupt vectors too, I guess. It has the keyboard, the break key, the break instruction, two serial uh, interrupt vectors, which I guess really aren't really used except for that expansion thing, which wasn't also really used. And then it's got the three pokey timers, timer one, two, and four. In conclusion, he says it would not be difficult given the information in this article to write a program in two versions, one for the 400, 800, and another for the 5200. He says, nor would it be difficult given the source code to convert a program from the 5200 to the 400, 800. He said it's easier going that way. Coming back to the 5200 from the 400, 800 might be more difficult if the program uses like IO stuff and things that the 5200 doesn't have. He says, I acquired the information in this article by dissecting a 5200 and disassembling its ROM. And then he includes one more page. There's a nice block diagram of the whole system and then a controller port pinout, cartridge slot pinout, and the IO expansion connector, which again was not used that I could tell. And okay, I lied. I'm going to do one more magazine. This is the next issue of Analog, issue 16, where he has an update, and it's included in the uh, reader comments section. So it's just like a like a one-column update where he talks about the newer release of the 5200 hardware. So he said controller ports 3 and 4 have been eliminated, making the uh, paddle or pot 4 through pot 7 useless, trig 2, trig 3, and bit 1 of console useless. So essentially, since you don't have two controllers, then yeah, you can only get information out of the first two controller ports. He says three pins on the cartridge connector were changed to get the new 2600 adapter to work, and that there's space on the newer boards for a PAL version of the 5200, which was never actually released. But he must have got one of these ROMs and disassembled it because apparently there's a check. So the GTIA would have to be changed if it were on PAL. And so there's a check in here to see if it's the European or the North American version of the GTIA chip. And he finishes up saying there are some additional hardware changes, but none affect the machine's operation from the programmer's view. Signed, Klaus Buckholz, Greenwich, Connecticut. So that's the hardware. It's really similar. And as we've all seen the 5200 versions that were brought to the 8-bits, that it was certainly possible to bring stuff from one system to the other. With that non-chronological stuff out of the way, let's get back to going in order. So I'm going to start going through magazines and some other like textual sources that I found. 
starting in 1982 and up through really 84 is about the last we'll see of 5200 coverage. The first is a press release dated January 6, 1982. For immediate release, Atari at Warner Communications Company, Atari Incorporated, 1265 Baragas Avenue, P.O. Box 427, Sunnyvale, California, 94086. It says, spectacular graphics and some of the most sophisticated and challenging software ever developed are the features of a new advanced game system introduced today by Atari Inc., the pioneer in electronic family entertainment. Atari's established leader in home video games, says Michael Moore, president of Atari's Consumer Electronics Division. With this new system, we will maintain the leadership for years to come. This new game system with a suggested retail price of $349.95 has far more power and memory potential than the Atari video computer system introduced in 1977. All right, and I'm going to stop quoting exactly because they're missing a comma in this next sentence, and I just it just drives me crazy. So I'm going to put a comma in there. It says, with this power, comma, the system exhibits unmatched visual quality. Game characteristics and rainbow colors appear clear and sharp. So yeah, press release people hire an English major or something. So blah, 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 a lot of like fluffery. And then it says a universal controller combines the combination operations of joystick, paddle, and keyboard into a single handheld unit. But interestingly, it says the control stick moves in eight directions instead of the usual four, rather than being omnidirectional as was really the design of the initial system. It says the controller is designed to fit in the hand comfortably, uh, either left or right-handed play, and pause button lets a player interrupt a game at any time. Then it says that the console itself is streamlined with a single electrical cord and built-in area for controller storage. It's an attractive, uncluttered appearance for maximum safety and convenience. It says for the first time there will be no rasping static from television sets when game cartridges are pulled from the system. The screen will flash to a quiet black. It says the new system will be released in the second half of 82 in time for Christmas. At least 10 cartridges immediately available, including exciting versions of proven winners such as Super Breakout, Space Invaders, Missile Command, and Asteroids. Then it says some of the most challenging and popular coin-op games will appear, including Pac-Man and Galaxian, and intriguing combat games including Star Raiders. The new system will also offer sports games, baseball, football, and soccer of unprecedented realism. Then it goes on to a sort of 10-line description of how baseball is going to be better, like you know, the pitchers throw slower fast, inside or outside, or knuckleball, have relief pitchers, you can change defensive positions, the base runners can steal. Yeah, somebody who wrote this was a big baseball fan, but they're not a big grammar fan. And it finishes up saying, Atari is a leading developer and manufacturer of video games for family game centers, home video games, and home computers for a variety of applications. The company is a wholly owned subsidiary of Warner Communications, Inc., so that was January 82, and it's a while before we get a mention in the popular press. And when I say popular press, let me summarize the magazines that I looked at here. Of the magazines I normally cover, I found references in Analog and Antic, Creative Computing, and that's about it. Surprisingly, no mention in the Atari Connection, although since that was dedicated to the home computers and the, the video games were actually produced out of a different division, we don't find references to the 5200 that I could tell in Atari Connection. The video game division did have its own magazine called Atari Age, which I will look at in this episode. But yeah, none of the other magazines that I normally cover, I compute, I got, I kind of got bored. I stopped looking in 1983 and I just couldn't find any references. Um, nothing significant anyway. Everything else had essentially no references. The UK magazines that I normally cover, computers and video games, and then the ones that are coming up soon, page six and Atari user. Since the 5200 was never released in the UK, I didn't even really have a big search for them. So they may mention it, you know, a little bit as to maybe like a potential, you know, video game console coming to the UK. But since it never got there, I never really looked at them for any significant uh, coverage. 
Of the new magazines that I'm going to cover in this episode only, there's Atari Age that I mentioned, there's Video Games Magazine from Pumpkin Press, there's Video Games Player Magazine, which later becomes a Computer Games Magazine, there's Joystick Magazine, that's S-T-I-K, there's another Joystick Magazine, but that's a French magazine, and that was a little bit later on, so it was like, you know, after the Atari 8-bit era. And finally, the last magazine that I took an extended look at was Electronic Games Magazine. I also did look at the Creative Computing Video and Arcade Games magazine. There were two issues of that, and I, I'm going to fold that into the regular coverage of the podcast, but I did look at the 5200 articles that they had in both of those issues. The earliest magazine we're going to look at is Electronic Games magazine. This started with the winter 1981-82 issue, was bi-monthly for a couple issues, and then went monthly from June 1982 all the way through August 1985. It apparently was an offshoot of a consumer electronics magazine called Video. In that magazine, there was a column called Arcade Alley, which apparently was the first column devoted to video games, like, ever, according to Wikipedia, so it's got to be true. But three friends, Bill Kunkel, Arnie Katz, and Joyce Worley, wrote that column and then eventually broke off to create this whole new magazine devoted to electronic games. In this first issue, it's $2.95 on the cover price. For the majority of its run through April 85, it had the same cover design, the same font. It's kind of a pixelized font set of electronic games on the top and that would have on the bottom like two-thirds of the page had like the main image centered on in this sort of metallic-y kind of square. There's nothing about the 5200 at all in this issue because it really came out before even the press announcement. But there is a regular column that recurs called Computer Playland where they review um, home computer games. And it's fitting for the very first column they review Star Raiders as the very first entry in this review. As is fitting for Star Raiders, they heap tons of praise on it, and as they say, it's so complicated as many as three people can cooperate on a single adventure. They say, if you haven't enjoyed a Star Raiders mission yet, do so at once. Then you'll know how pulse-pounding a computer game can be. They also review Bowling by PDI, House of Usher, Beneath the Pyramid, and Sands of Mars by Crystalware, Nomino's Jigsaw by Dynacomp, which they say is a brilliant concept. They have a screenshot of it. it seems like it's a, yeah, a puzzle. It's... They say it's clever and completely original, and that the computer generates a new puzzle every time. So it says you try to fit 60 odd-shaped pieces into a 9x9 nine nine grid, and it shows all the pieces you've got to fit, and so you have to, I guess, I don't know, i have to take a look at it sometime. It seems interesting. Obviously not an arcade-style game, but that seems pretty complicated to fit all those little pieces. They're kind of like t- vaguely tetris shaped pieces, anywhere from one to maybe five or six pixelated blocks that you've got to fit into this you know, 9x9 nine nine grid, so 81 squares. They also review War at Sea and Space Chase by Fernando Herrera. I hadn't heard of this. Of course, I know Astro Chase and other stuff by him. This apparently is a basic game released by Swifty Software. They say, for a basic language program, Space Chase has surprisingly quick joystick response. This goes far to make a dexterity game like this an enjoyable arcading experience. And wow, there's really a lot of reviews. There's It keeps going. There's Lords of Karma, an Avalon Hill game. Horse Racing by Jerry White uh, from CE Software, which is, looks like a betting game, and it says the gamer's complete lack of control over the horses increases the excitement level as well as lending a touch to, of realism to the proceedings. So I guess it's a betting game. But that's it for this issue that's really interesting. I'm going to cover a bunch more electronic games here before we get into more magazines, and it's really just going to be 400, 800 reviews at this point because the, the 5200 doesn't show up in electronic games for a little bit. The next issue of Electronic Games is the March 1982 issue. And on the cover, it says a decade of programmable video games and also a strategy session, including Star Raiders and Jawbreaker. 
So they have an article in here. Is the Atari 400 the ultimate game machine by Jethro Wright III? And I say it is indeed. This is really what should have replaced the 5200 or should have supplanted the 5200 had they marketed this right. The article starts out, having tasted unqualified success with its entries in the coin-op and programmable video game markets. And as an aside, they call programmable video games like not fixed, not, not like a Pong console. So they, they, this is, that's their term for like cartridge based or something that you can change the program. It doesn't mean programmable in the sense that user programmable, but it means, you know, like a, a console or some system that has user changeable programs. Anyway, to continue, Atari turned its formidable experience toward the next logical step, a true home computer slash gaming system. And they say, so instead of introducing one, they introduced two at different price points, the 400 and the 800. They talk about the keyboard, you know, being sealed and um, resisting contamination. They said it's quite adequate for the needs of computer gamers, but <laughs> will almost certainly discourage anyone from attempting to do any serious programming. They talk about the expansion capability a little bit, the SIO port, and needing a, the 850 to do any serial interfacing or having a printer port. They talk about the convenience of daisy chaining stuff, and they go over a high-level overview of the 6502, and they, they sort, of, sort of mention the custom chips, but they don't really go into detail about that. They say as a total system, the 400 is most impressive for its price, 399 suggested retail, and saying, with the option of using up to four joysticks or an almost unbelievable eight paddles, excellent graphics capabilities, and a sound through the TV generator, the 400 serves as an excellent foundation for a home gaming system. Talks a little bit about BASIC. It says a particular interest in this regard is the concept of player missile graphics. This provides a programmer with a simple interface for the development of game programs. And then principal features of player missile graphics include independent control of one to four joysticks and flexible manipulation of player objects, such as player tokens and missiles on the screen, including user-selected foreground and background color options for these objects. So that's a not quite correct understanding of player missile graphics, but they say, and maybe this is derived from the basic reference manual because they say it could stand some real improvement in the explanation and clarification of, of various keywords and their options. But anyway, all in all, a, a quite positive review of the 400. And yeah, honestly, had they marketed stuff correctly, this, the 5200 probably should not have come to existence and the 400 should have replaced it, you know, at, at what, three years earlier. But kind of this confusion between a games machine and an actual computer. And, you know, maybe at that point, maybe it was too early. Maybe it scared people off. They didn't want a computer. And I suppose, you know, have, being double the price of the BCS, that probably had something to do with it as well. There's the article, A Decade of Programmable Video Games. And it starts out really poorly. It says, Like a vain woman who covers telltale wrinkles with tons of makeup, electronic games constantly fib about their age. The misogyny, it runs deep in this industry. Thankfully, they leave that behind and say, starting out in 1962, that Steve Russell at MIT created Space War. Then they talk about Nolan Bushnell in Computer Space and Bill Pitts with a game called Galaxy Game. Now, that's something I hadn't heard before, but apparently it's a, it's a Space War-like game. It was produced in 1981, a coin-op. It says, um, developed by Bill Pitts and Hugh Tuck. The references I find about it say it was created at Stanford, not MIT. So I don't know how Electronic Games got that reference to, like, Bill Pitts being an MIT student. Then they talk about Ralph Baer and the creation of the Magnavox Odyssey, and how Nolan Bushnell, having seen that, started Atari with Pong, following up with Breakout. But these early systems were still not solid state, and they mentioned the General Instruments AY38500, the first dedicated chip that it says has enough instruction data to play up to four paddle and two target games. Saying Coleco became that first, the first major customer for General Instruments chip there, the Telstar Arcade. And that's when they bring Atari back in again, teaming up with Sears to sell 
what it calls several intriguing hardwired products, including Indy 500 and Video Pinball, saying the latter was particularly good, boasting two of the best pinball games ever developed, a version of Breakout, and a pair of basketball-like contests called Rebound. But then saying consumers are getting restless, tiring of paddle games, and especially of systems that were antiquated two weeks after purchase, because no matter how entertaining, a fixed set of games got boring. So programmability was the obvious answer, and then Fairchild, with its channel F in August 1976, was the first system that had game cartridges. Disappointingly, while they name drop a lot of other people, they don't talk about Jerry Lawson, the designer of the Fairchild Channel F. And it wasn't until later in his life that he really got recognized for the pioneering work that he did. I'll include a link in the show notes to an episode of the podcast Command Line Heroes, where they go over his legacy in the video game industry. He's one of the few people of color we have in this era of computing history, and it's too bad that more people don't know about him. Back to the article. It says, following hard on the heels of the Channel F came RCA Studio 2, a fiasco of astonishing magnitude. It says, among other drawbacks, Studio 2 attempted to compete against color systems and programmables by being both black and white and non-programmable. By 1978, they say the manufacturers were dumping the hardwired games for huge discounts, as they were by then competing with the Bally Professional Arcade, and at lower price points, it says, were the VCS and Magnavox's Odyssey 2. Mattel joined in in 1980 with its Intellivision. And it was this pressure from other competitors that caused Atari to advance faster with the VCS than they intended. It quotes Atari Steve Wright as saying, The VCS was basically designed to play paddle games and tank battles. In fact, when the VCS was being designed, it was felt that 2K was more than enough capacity. Then they decided, oh, why not make it 4K? Not that they thought anyone would ever use that. But this article says then they, Atari made 4K games much earlier than they ever intended to do so. They mentioned Activision, and they don't really go into why Activision started, but they said, Rumors are rife that other suppliers will be following Activision's successful footsteps before the end of the year. One has already been announced, and here they use uh, the incorrect version of the name, Imagix, they say, will be producing cartridges for both the VCS and the Intellivision. So, interesting, I wonder if it was Imagix initially before they changed it to Imagic, or if this is just a typo. So they end the article with uh, a question. At what point does the video game system meet the computer? As the latter simultaneously becomes cheaper and more powerful, it won't be long before the two segments of electronic gaming are joined together as one. Already, the floppy disk is vying with the ROM cartridge as the medium for storing games. One thing is for sure, if the first decade of video games is any indication, the next 10 years ought to provide plenty of excitement both on and off the home screen. There's a section of the magazine called Electronic Games Hotline, which is a bunch of bunch of little kind of mini kind of status reports, I guess, from various places. It lists an Atari report, but that's really talking about the VCS. And there's one called Computer Shorts, where it talks about a few things for the home computers. And it mentions that the folks at Analog, a magazine covering the VCS and a 400-800, couldn't bear to stay on the sidelines and only write about all that exciting software. The Massachusetts-based outfit has just produced a number of programs for the Atari computers. Included in the first group of programs are the Analog Adventure, a version of the original adventure game, Thunder Island, a maze challenge, and Shooting Gallery, a moving target extravaganza. Also in this little section, there's a column called Tournament Fiasco. It says the coin-op world has crowned a pair of national champions, but nobody is celebrating. The tournament held in Chicago's Expo Center from October 28th to November 1st proved to be a dismal failure. They say Atari backed the project with 50000 in prizes, but the outfit picked to administer the event Tournament Games, Inc. fumbled the ball. They say that place had previously been running like billiard, foosball, air hockey, and dart competitions, but showed their lack of experience, promising ten to 15,000 attendees, but the actual attendance was an unbelievable 150. 
that fewer than two dozen female arcaders showed up. They say poor attendance is probably attributable to the cost and scheduling of the tournament. It's like, yeah, what else would there be? They say that the contestants were forced to pay for all their games with quarters, even during practice rounds. And the competitors, to to their dismay, found that internal timers had been installed on all 250 centipede machines to limit play to just three minutes. They said chaos ruled during the four days. Rules and schedules changed frequently, creating much confusion about where and when people were to play. So Eric Ginner emerged as the winner of the open singles competition and won 12,000, and Oksu Han won 4,000 as the female arcade champion. Here in this same section, they say Imagic debuts, using the correct spelling of the name, so it must have just have been a typo in the previous article. But it has a picture of the team, Bill Grubb and Dennis Koble, previously of Atari, and James Goldberg, Brian Doherty, formerly of Mattel, and company expects to have its first releases in mid-1982. Imagic intends to be a major factor in the video game business within 12 months, vows co-founder Bill Grubb. And finally, finishing off this section, there's a little column entitled Adult Games. It says, The Dirty Book, intended to be published quarterly, promises to print program listings and games that are a good deal more risque than Space Invaders. And it shows a picture of the cover. It says, The Dirty Book, User's Guide to Erotic Software. Published fittingly by New Orleans Bourbon Street Press. Continuing on through the magazine, there's a section of talks about how to beat some space games, but they're all for, like, consoles. But just to double down on their misogyny, of course, they have a nice artwork drawing of some, like, imagined space battle where this, you know, guy in, like, sort of armor and helmet and, oh, you know, laser gun shooting a wrinkly-looking scaly alien. Of course, the guy's doing all the action, and he's protecting this girl in sort of entirely impractical clothing. You know, a lot of exposed skin and gold high-slitted skirt and gold bikini top, you know, contrasted with him in this red sort of armor, a typical damsel in distress model. You know, I read so much science fiction back then, and it's amazing how much science fiction is a product of their, the time it was written. Science fiction is supposed to be looking, you know, forward into the future for, you know, new ideas, and yet things like misogyny were just implicit in the future as written back in the 80s science fiction. In the computer playland section, it starts out poorly by talking about Apple II games, but finally they get to a Atari game, Time Bomb, by Swifty Software, which is a reworking of a concept introduced by Swifty's own Space Chase. It says in both an on-screen object collects items spread across the playfield while avoiding pursuit. And again, it appears to be written by Fernando Herrera. It says it might not be quite up to Space Chase, but it does have its charms. And there's a review of Jawbreaker, Missile Command, Galactic Chase, Dodge Racer from Synapse, which is inspired by Dodgem, it says. Uh, Imperial Walker by Crystalware, which is a mixed bag of five games, I guess loosely based on Star Wars. And I wonder if this is the same thing about, like, the was it Attack of the Metal Monster Clones or something that I mentioned in uh, one of the previous episodes? There's a Passport to Adventure column, which is a review of a bunch of, uh, like, adventure games. The Quest by Survival Software, and Wizardry for the Apple II, which never got released on the Atari, but also uh, Analog Adventure. In the Strategy Session article, they also talk about Jawbreaker, and then this it gives you more sort of details about how to try to beat it. And then they have a, also an entry on Star Raiders, with a few more advanced tips over what they had in their initial review of it in the last uh, issue of the magazine. In the June 1982 issue of Electronic Games, we have its first mention of the 5200, although here it's called the Atari Super Game. 
and it shows a picture of the console, which is really like a stock photo they must have got from Atari. And if you squint on the brushed metal part, it says Atari Video System X. So obviously before they renamed it to the 5200. It says members of the trade and press were given an opportunity to play a version of Centipede on the new system. But it doesn't say that they particularly did it. So it's just whether they heard rumors of it or they themselves participated is unclear. This is in a Q&A section, and a sort of novice computer user asks a question, why won't a cassette program for one system work on another computer? And is there hardware or software that will allow an Apple cassette to be played on an Atari 400-800? And the answer is sort of a gentle, sorry, but you know, various personal computer systems are not compatible. They use different processors and even speak different languages. They say, as for a device that would allow Apple software to work on Atari computers, there was actually talk of such an emulator about a year ago, an ad even appeared. But alas, creators were premature, and as of the moment, no such wonder machine has been developed. It says there may be hope, however. Coleco has promised a peripheral for its new video game system that would allow their ColecoVision to play all Atari-compatible software. And here, obviously, they mean VCS software, but maybe that's understood. As we learned back in episode 6 of the podcast, there are ways to convert software from the Apple to the Atari. I talked with Atari Age user Seamus about how he converted Sabotage to the Atari. It's much easier going that way than it would be going from the Atari to the Apple II, given all the custom chips we have on our Ataris. In this same section, there's a question about an Atari 800 and would like to know if it can use a quadriscan vector monitor. That question from Scott Goodwin of Lake and Heath Air Force Base in England, and the answer is a little less gentle. It says, sorry, Scotty old boy, but home computers and programmable video games have to be specially designed for the type of monitor on which they appear. Saying that all current home systems are raster-based and that the quadriscan is a vector monitor, like noting uh, Eliminator, Tempest, and Space Duel being arcade examples of the vector monitors. But interestingly, it says there have been rumors within the electronics game industry that someone may produce a video game system that will come with its own vector graphics type monitor. Obviously, this is presaging the Vectrex. The only downside to this intriguing idea is that the monitors would almost certainly be black and white, which the Vectrex was, and had those overlays to make it, you know, sort of color. The Vectrex was released in late 1982, around the same time as the 5200. So maybe there were more substantial things than just rumors by the time this magazine came out. So this is what the June issue, so probably came out in May. So we're talking press time in March or April. So I'm not exactly sure when the Vectrex was announced or sort of previewed by GCE. The middle part of the magazine is pretty arcade-heavy, and as we go on to the later part of the magazine, they have some articles on adventure games, and at least they have, among the women with impractical armor, they have a bunch of men with impractical armor as well. You know, an, an unbuttoned vest where the guy holds a scimitar, sort of ill-fitting chainmail with the arms exposed, and a barbarian type with a, a chest plate, but kind of a loincloth and high boots. So I guess it's not all misogyny, just mostly in the strategy session article, they have uh, tips on the Atari 400-800 Missile Command. And then in the Computer Playland, they have reviews of Crazy Shootout, Captivity from Beyond Software, which they say is a maze game that ha- provides both an overhead and worm's eye view of the action, it says. There's a review of Protector by Mike Potter and Synapse Software. And there's another positive review of the game called Ricochet, which I reviewed in the last um, Creative Computing, I think. The November 82 Creative Computing and the, the one of the, I guess, two episodes ago since I split the 1982 stuff. But saying, yeah, every once in a while a game comes along that is so fresh, so offbeat and entertaining, it becomes a compulsion among players who overdose temporar- temporarily on maze chases and blowing up aliens. 
So I did take a look at the game uh, between last episode and now, and it's in basic, and so it's kind of slow, and so I didn't really get a good feel for it. So I may have to go back and, and take another look. You're seeing the audio and graphic effects are simple but satisfying, and but yeah, a delightful contest that involves elements of action, strategy, and tactical thinking in a marvelous ensemble. A truly offbeat triumph. Well worth, che- well worth checking out and highly recommended for fans of strategy contests. Finishing off the magazine, they have a reader poll. And so it asks for, you know, demographic details and sort of what your favorite section of the magazine is, how much you play video games, and asks about your favorite video games, computer games, and coin ops. So we'll have to see when the results show up for this. Let's bring in Video Games Magazine. It has a reference to the 5200 in its very first issue, the August 1982 issue, Volume 1, Number 1. Video Games Magazine was published by Pumpkin Press. It was bi-monthly for its first two issues, August of 82 and October of 82, then monthly from December of 82 through May of 84, and then there was one final issue. It was labeled the Summer-Fall issue in 1984. The cover price was $2.95 for most of the run. There were a few issues later on that went down to 2 bucks 50 as kind of a sale price. I don't know if that was like, you know, knowing the writings on the wall, trying to figure out if they can get more people to subscribe by having a lower price. But it's all optimism on the first issue. The cover is kind of stylized like a Time magazine, if you remember those. It had like a red border around it, and it said Video Games, the you know the name of the magazine, and this is Man of the Year Pac-Man, and it has a 3D-rendered Pac-Man. And on the cover, it references an article, uh, an interview with Nolan Bushnell of Pong and Pizza, it says. Also, it says Activision Software War on the title. The reference of the 5200 is in this section they call Blips, which is kind of like their little small clips of news blurbs and stuff. It references the upcoming CES and says a staggering number of new systems are going to be available. And then here it says Atari's 5200 Advanced Video Entertainment System. It says we'll be the first to dub it the VES and as many as 14 carts, including Star Raiders, Taito's Kicks, and a game version of the film Raiders of the Lost Dark. And then it devolves into some stuff about the VCS. The article on Nolan Bushnell starts out as saying he's the most legendary figure in the brief but frenzied history of video games. And then it gives a capsule summary of the beginning of Atari, and then it goes into his how he left Warner after selling to them to start the Pizza Time Theater, which, of course, eventually becomes Chuck E. Cheese. There's a picture of Nolan Bushnell, and behind him is a picture of the big rat that looks <laughs> a little, little scary-looking rat. And in the interview, talks about th- some things. He mentions Al Alcorn, and interestingly said uh, that Bushnell wanted Alcorn to design a driving game. But it quotes him as saying, I just hired Al and didn't feel he was quite up to that speed. I asked him to do a sort of simple ping pong kind of game as a practice exercise, a throwaway, really. Turned out to be a heck of a lot of fun, so we decided to market it on the way to a driving game. Then it talks about computer space, only selling 2,000 units, but it was enough to get him off the ground. And the interviewer asks about key games and that sort of whole, you know, merger slash marketing ploy. And he talks about how they had to set up key games, even though they were like really the same company, Joe Keenan and Nolan Bushnell being partners. Bushnell says the reason they set up that because each city had two major distributors and each one demanded an exclusive contract that left the other guy who was usually just almost as strong without a source of video games. So I guess they figured they could double their money if they had, you know, almost an identical game from Key that Atari had produced. So by setting up one company exclusively with one distributor and one exclusively with the other distributor, yeah, strategy, he said. The rest of the interview is mostly about Pizza Time and his venture capital work, but they do ask him a bit about his management style, saying that he takes some flack and said critics points to things like Grass Valley, which is the, you know, research and development division. 
And Bushnell defends his use of Grass Valley saying that every single one of his major innovations came from there. So he said, you know, the 2600, the vector monitor, the 800, all that stuff came out of Grass Valley. And he says, I just think there's no direct correlation between hard work and good results. You need leisure for perspective and work for execution. But all execution and no perspective leads to a bad product. The article on Activision is kind of like a you know regular summary of the VCS developers that left Atari to form Activision. There's a big article on Pac-Man saying the acknowledged king of arcades now has a wife, a hit record, and more spin-offs than Dallas and all the family combined. Talk about the song from Buckner and Garcia, you know, Miss Pac-Man, the sequel. And then it brings me to something I discovered as I was reading all these magazines is a lot of these video game magazines, you know, they sort of target the arcades, even though they have, will generally have, you know, home video section. But a lot of these magazines will have like a list of high scores. And so this is the point before, speaking of Pac-Man, that they really know that there's an end to the game. So in the high score list here, it lists uh, probably just a dozen games or so. But for Pac-Man, they list the high score is 5.5 million by Paul Padriana of Lakewood, California. And this is a theme that I was going to sort of cover in this episode, like how these escalating scores for Pac-Man, you know, kept going up and up. And now, of course, we know that there's a there's a limit and there's a there is a maximum score that you can get because of the the kill screen on level 256 on the arcade game. So I was going to do that, but I got to thinking there must, somebody must have done some research about this and, and have done this before. And I found an article. So I'm going to include a link in the show notes to this really great. It's like not, it's a nine, it's a nine section blog post. It's huge. It's a lot of, it's a long read for sure, but it's about, well, ostensibly it's about Billy Mitchell and all his lying and cheating for all of his high scores. But since Pac-Man was a big part of Billy Mitchell's legend, there is a section of one of the blog posts and part of another one going over the evolution of the high scores and how initially they framed it as the machine was overheating why that, that level 256 was, you know, had the split screen and, and the sort of now famous, you know, final screen of Pac-Man. So there are all these rumors about pe- some people who could get past it and some people couldn't, but the, all the legitimate scores are below 3.3 million. But as we'll see, I'll mention a couple as we go, but there are scores that are just astronomically high and people claim that they had, you know, secret ways to bypass the split screen level so they could continue playing. Quite a number of people got famous for having these. One of the most famous or infamous, I suppose, is uh, President Reagan sent an eight-year-old named Jeffrey Yee a congratulatory letter for supposedly getting 6.1 million. But anyway, uh, the blog post is great. I'll include a link in the show notes. Um, yeah, it's interesting that all these high scores were accepted without any sort of, you know, visual proof. I guess part of it was that Pac-Man doesn't have a seventh digit counter, so it, it wraps at, you know, 999,990. But anyway, for your Pac-Man high score fixes, go to that website. It's super amazing. In September 1982, we get a mention of the 5200 in Video Games Player magazine. This is the first issue of this magazine. It's $2.95. On the cover page, it says, Win a year's worth of quarters. And secret tips to beat Defender, Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, Kicks, and more. And then the complete Fall 1982 Home Game Buyer's Guide. Its table of contents seems to be laid out more like a in a bunch of columns, and there are pictures with some of the main entries. So there's big page numbers and then a picture. And sometimes they'll have a summary for the article. Most of the magazine is dedicated to the arcades, but it does have the home video section. And that's where we find the 5200 reference in the Fall 1982 Complete Home Video Game Buyer's Guide. 
in the Atari section, they talk about the 2600 having the widest variety, the biggest selection of games. But then it says, if you've waited this long to purchase one, think about waiting just a little longer because there's a new system called the 5200. This one is going to beat everything. No joke. It says priced at about $210 marked down from the 340 list. The 5200 offers improved graphics and several features not found on any other system so far. Talks about the controllers being closer to the Intellivision having the small calculator style keypad. Firing buttons located on the side towards the top. It says there's a speed control built in, which on specific cartridges will allow the player to speed up the action. So I don't know what that means. Maybe some misinformation based on some speculation. It does talk about the 360-degree joystick and the pause button. The author says, I saw Pac-Man played on this new system, and let me tell you, it is great. The graphics are really as good as the arcade version, and even include the intermissions. The bad news about the system is that the 5200 is not compatible with the 2600, but sometime in the future, an expansion module will be made available. So don't throw away those games yet, it says. It says the strength of the 5200 is going to be the arcade ports, saying they have rights to stuff like Asteroids, Space Invaders, Defender, Missile Command, and Pac-Man, which on the VCS is just awful. But it said the 5200 has corrected all of this, and there's hardly a negative thing that can be said about the new system. And I guess they haven't really played with the controllers yet, because certainly there's going to be a lot of criticism of those. And then in a theme that's going to run for the entire life of the 5200, they talk about the ColecoVision and how that it's only going to be rivaled by the 5200. We'll see the rivalry being played out in the reader comments section of these magazines as we go along here in the podcast. Still in September 1982, we get to Joystick Magazine, the premier issue. It's $2.95. It's kind of subtitle. It's actually like a super title. It's like how to win at video games. And it's mostly about arcade games, but they do have a good selection of home video stuff. And in the Future Waves department by David Stewart, they have a announcement of the 5200. Have like a looks like probably a stock picture from Atari of the console with two controllers, and it says video fans everywhere are anxiously awaiting Atari's new System X or Atari 5200. The company has not decided on a definitive name yet, saying it'll retail for about $330, cartridges costing between 32 and 40, and some of the features: a universal controller that includes keyboard, joystick, and paddle controls, a joystick that controls speed as well as full circular direction, fitting comfortably into any hand. The single wire that connects the television. Once connected to the set, you never have to touch the back of the TV. Better graphics and improvement over the Atari VCS 2600. And a special feature that puts the screen to silent black when you change cartridges. No more raspy white noise. So all these details, that's almost straight from the press release. And in fact, it says, Atari spokesman Jeff Hoff told Joystick, and that has a quote from him, but Jeff Hoff is the same name as on the press release that we just read about, the one that was released on January 6th. And it lists the games, you know, quoted by Jeff Hoff as if he were talking to the the Joystick magazine. But the games listed are almost exactly the list that was included in the press release. The one that's different is they mention a tank game, which is not mentioned anywhere in the press release. And in fact, the game tank is not listed among the official releases of the system anyway. So I don't know where they got that information. In the magazine, there's an interview with Eugene Jarvis, the designer of games like Defender and Robotron. He worked on pinball games at Atari and then video games at Williams. And at the time of this article, he just had founded VidKids, which is design studio, which is where he developed Robotron. Talking about Robotron, he says the uh, initial concept was very ambitious, like this whole futuristic underground civilization saying like corridors connecting things. And then he said he realized it would take him like 10 years to develop that. So he kind of pared it down. It says aggression has always been a constant theme of his. He says he's an action player, doesn't like to be on the run. 
likes to feel like he has the fate in his hands and that he also said that he never likes the player to feel like they're out of it. So that's why he in, made sure that there was always ways to get extra players every, you know, certain amount of time. Like Robotron, every 25,000 points, you get a new life saying, you never feel like you're out of the game. Even, even if you had the most miserable start, you can always redeem yourself. There's a big section on arcade games and patterns and stuff for various games. And then there's an article by Dave and Sandy Small. It says, Computer Games 82 D&D. D&D being Dungeons and Dragons. And so the first half of the article is sort of this narrative of like what a D&D adventure would be, you know, if you're sitting there playing on the on a table with a dungeon master and, and players. But the second half of the article is about how this genre has become dominant in the home computer industry, talking about games like Wizardry and Ultima. So they say, put away your starship, quit blowing up those space rocks over and over, stop defending cities from the nuclear attack, pick up a sword, a little spell knowledge, and come with us to explore the labyrinth. There's an article near the end in the home video section called The New Video Games, Imitations or Innovations by Paul Wiswell. And in it, it compares the Mattel Intellivision with the 5200, or is this, is it, as they call it here, the still tentatively titled Atari Video System X. It says it'll compete head-on with the Intellivision, and much of the Intellivision's advanced design is reflected in the System X, such as the pause button and a to-be-announced voice chip that will add speech to the games. And as far as I know, there was no voice chip released for the 5200. It lists kind of the initial planned release, initial games for the 5200, which is the same list we've all seen several times. It says the list price here is $329.95, which is different than what we've seen in other places. And then it says the only console competitively priced with the System X and in television is the Bally Astrocade. Or now, as it says, it's now the Astro Arcade sold by Astrovision. It says, unfortunately, an outdated line of software has left it dead in the water. Later on in the next page, they mention Coleco entering the game market, but not mentioning the ColecoVision itself. So I don't know if this magazine went to press too early before the ColecoVision was released, but they're just talking about cartridges that they plan to produce for other systems. And this magazine, too, has a list of arcade high scores, including the Pac-Man high score of 5.5 million by Paul Padriani, that we know now to be fraudulent. Next, we find a mention of the 5200 in the Atari Age magazine. Now, this is a magazine that was distributed to Atari Club members. The Atari Club was apparently a subsidiary of Atari. You could join for a dollar, and you'd get a one-year subscription to the magazine. The first couple issues were like newsletters, and then it became a glossy magazine, starting with Volume 1, Number 1, which was the May-June 1982 issue. And then, like most things Atari, everything changed when Jack Trammell bought the company. So it's the final issue there was the March and April issue of 1984. The covers all had sort of similar looks. The first six or so issues had one look, and then they refined it slightly for the last, like, four issues, I guess. There was like a horizontal rainbow stripe on the top, probably, I don't know, two centimeters or something. And then Atari Age in kind of this rounded font on the first sort of iteration. And then below the Atari Age, it had an, another rainbow again in reverse order, but the couple of the, it was the pixelated a little bit as if it were like a breakout game. And then the bottom, probably, you know, 80% was in the, the cover, whatever that cover design was of that month. On the second half of the magazine, it's retained the same sort of theme with the rainbow striping and the pixelated stuff on the bottom half, but the Atari age itself, it changed font and it was a much more sort of kind of standard sans serif font. I kind of like the first font a little bit better. It was, it's got a little more, it's blocky sort of, but rounded corners, no relation to any of the other Atari fonts that you've seen. So like on, under the Fuji that the Atari logo is, it's not at all the same, but it's a uh, yeah unique to this magazine as far as I could tell. No relation to the Atari age website that we all kind of use as a forum now. 
But no mentions of the 5200 in issues one and two of volume one. And issue three is where we get the first reference. And that is in the sneak peek section. It's a special report for the CES. And being that this is a production of Atari itself, you know, it's written in this kind of this, you know, breathless style of how awesome this thing is. It said crowds waited patiently to try their hand at superbly detailed versions of soccer, Galaxian, Missile Command, and Space Invaders. The biggest Atari 5200 news at CES was not the specific games being offered though, but two surprise additions to the game system itself, a trackball controller and an adapter to make current VCS cartridges compatible with the 5200 system. Trying out the trackball unit sample at CES, we discovered we could play with the same precise control and lightning fast speed found in the best arcade games. We were especially happy to learn about the adapter unit, which lets VCS owners play the game cartridges they already own through the new system. While gameplay for VCS cartridges will remain the same when played through the 5200, the adapter lets you enjoy your your current cartridge collection and the exciting new games programmed exclusively for the 5200 without having to switch game consoles. The adapter is due in 1983. Atari also confirmed the 5200 will talk to us soon. Work on a voice synthesizer module for the new system is progressing quickly. Sometime in 1983, Atari 5200 owners will be playing games combining spoken information with on-screen images for a total video game experience. And that's really it for this magazine. They're all really short. They're like 16 or 20 pages. You know, really just like, you know, fan club newsletters. But, it's you know, it's all glossy paper. It's it's very professionally done, for sure. Here's a little bonus. I found something, a newsletter called The Video Game Update. It was published out of North Hollywood, California. Seems like it was monthly and it ran all the way through 1990, it looks like. It started in early 1982. But I found a mention of the 5200 in the November issue. November 1982, and it's it's only six page newsletter, and it's really it's the whole thing is just packed with reviews. You know, they're like just one or two paragraph little reviews for various different systems, but then it has about a quarter of a page overview of the 5200 system. Kind of repeats some of the same stuff we've heard before. You know, it's got a a nice futuristic looking console, got space for the controllers to store, the one cable for the TV power, how the screen goes blank when the pull a cartridge out. But then it goes on to a very positive review of the controllers, you know, describing the functions they use. But then it says the 360-degree non-self-centering joystick is smaller than the one for the 2600, has a different feel that maybe takes some time to get used to. But because it's not self-centering, you do not need to hold it to keep it an on-screen object in one spot away from the center of your screen. We feel this controller is one of the best available as standard equipment on any game unit currently available. And then it has reviews of five of the initial games that were going to be released. Super Breakout, Defender, Centipede, Galaxian, and Soccer. Gives them four-star ratings to all of them. Although it has an interesting system where there's it's a, a, there's two sets of ratings. There's a, a set of, out of four stars, and there's a slash, and another set out of four stars. And on the front page, it has an explanation. So the first set is the quality of the graphics, and the second set is the quality of the play action. So four is excellent, three is good, two is fair, and one is poor. So Super Breakout gets four stars for graphics and three for gameplay. Defender gets three and a half for graphics and four for gameplay. And then Centipede, Galaxian, and Soccer all get four out of four for both. Doesn't say why they took off half star for Defender. For Super Breakout, they liked the, the melting effect that was added, but it said, we would have rather have seen a newer title packed with the unit. So it was an interesting newsletter, and as this goes on, we'll end up finding reviews of uh, Atari 8-bit stuff as well. So who knows, maybe I'll fold this into the regular coverage of the podcast. The November 1982 Joystick Magazine has in its home video section, How Do You Choose by Danny Goodman. And so it's a table listing all the currently available systems and sort of ratings about all the characteristics. 
So the systems it lists are the VCS, the 5200, Intellivision, Odyssey 2, Astrocade, ColecoVision, the Emerson 2001, the Create Vision 4 from a company called Video Technology, and the Vectrex. Now, I've never heard of the Create Vision 4, so pause. Now, I tell you what, if there's any combination of words that's harder to search for in Google than Create Vision, Video, and Technology, I haven't found it yet. Only when I realized that video technology was VTech was I able to find it. So it, it looks like it was released under the name Creative Vision, and it seems like it wasn't distributed in the U.S. According to Wikipedia, it was in a lot of European countries, and then in the ANZ region as the Dick Smith Wizard. So of these systems, there's rankings from one star, which is poor, to four stars, which is excellent, in the categories of controllers, graphics resolution, sound variety, and value comparison. So the 2600 is given three stars in controllers, two for graphics, three for sound, and three for value. The 5200 is given three for controllers, four for graphics, four for sound, and two for value. The Intellivision and Odyssey 2 are both given two for controllers. But the Astrocade and the ColecoVision are given four stars. The Vectrex is down on the controllers as well, just two, two stars for those little gamepad style controllers. But the Vectrex gets four for graphics, sound, and value. The ColecoVision gets four for everything, except for the sound variety, it says there's not enough information available. So the Intellivision, with its two-star controllers, gets three for graphics, three for sound, and three for value. The Odyssey 2 is probably the runt of the litter here, gets two for controllers, two for graphics, one for sound, and two for value. There's no clear winner. Factoring in the value, I suppose the ColecoVision would have to be called the winner. In the comments, it says it has a small library now, but adaptable to the huge Atari VCS library. For the 5200, the comments are it's small library as well, but has popular arcade titles, including Pac-Man. And in the article text, it says that the ne- in the next issue, we'll have an in-depth hands-on review of the ColecoVision, but no promises for the 5200 as it hasn't even been really released yet at, well, at the press time for the magazine anyway. Finally, in this magazine, there's a review by Dave and Sandy Small of the Atari 8-bit game Preppy. So it's interesting that they have a little crossover with some uh, creative computing people. In the November 1982 Electronic Games magazine, they have a brief mention of the 5200 saying that the list price has dropped a bit and the street price may be as little as $219. There's an article, The Gamer's Guide to Microcomputers, and it has a small little section on each of the major computers of the time. The VIC-20, the IBM, the Radio Shack TRS-80 color computer, the Apple II, and our favorite, the Atari. It says the Atari computer's two compatible systems, and it has a little overview of the 400 and the 800. It does a pretty good job summarizing the system, you know, telling about the graphics and the sound. The, it gets all the details right about the, you know, the RAM and the ROM of each system. It doesn't really dwell on the 400 keyboard that much. It, it does say the 800 keyboard is exceptionally easy to use. It says the four controller ports are sure to appear to game players. It says the unusual feature of the 800 is the two cartridge ports, and although that everything currently released now uses the left slot, it says, someday, someone may actually make use of the poor, neglected right cartridge slot. It talks about the 400's expandability, or sort of difficulty therein, saying manufacturers like Axelon and Mosaic have you know, RAM expansions to make it a full 48K. They say, some computers have complained the Atari disk drive isn't heavy-duty enough for business applications, but it is certainly able to get the games on the screen in a reasonable period of time when serving as a home arcade. Then they mention Percom drives, and then it's... Uh, <laughs> for those who really can't reconcile themselves to the Atari-made one. Talk about how many different kinds of joysticks you can plug in, you know, because of the, being the VCS standard. And then it says, although the peripherals, the number of peripherals and gadgets and stuff doesn't match that of the Apple, most of the essentials are available, you know, like modems and printers and stuff. 
And in terms of software, it says Atari doesn't flood the market with games, but the stuff that is out there is generally good. It says all the Atari-produced stuff are on cartridges. And then they talk a little bit about APX and how you can get stuff on, on discs and cassettes. And it mentions a couple third-party games, Jawbreaker, which I can understand why they chose, and then Mega Legs, which is a game I don't know from Megasoft, which is apparently is a Centipede clone. Like most of the video game magazines of this era, there's a lot of arcade talk, but there's a good amount of stuff. They talk about the Arcadia 2001 system, and there's a large section of a bunch of reviews for various uh, computer games. Like, here's a review of Rearguard, which is way more positive than I gave it, for sure. Such a brilliantly simple game concept that, of course, works perfectly. It's a reminder that fine software can still be created using basic and bolstered machine language subroutines. So interesting that they say they reviewed the Atari 800 version, but the graphics they include are pretty much straight off the advertisement because the first one is from the Apple II version, which is clearly a much better game. So yeah, I don't know. This I think this article is a bit uh, misleading, if nothing else. There's a review of Haunted Hill and then Deluxe Invaders, by far the best Space Invaders program ever released for a personal computer. So hey, we agree on this one. Then there's a review of Mega Legs saying an addicting game, excellent new game for Atari computers. And so here it is. Yeah, it's, it's Centipede for sure. Looks like it's Antic Mode 4. You're a player, and the, you know, the spiders and the fleas and stuff falling down are also players. It looks like the Centipede itself is drawn using just character graphics. So it just moves from one character to the next sort of not a, not a smoothly scrolling centipede. But yeah, it's not a bad little game. It's got nice smooth gameplay. So yeah, I had not heard of that game before. Hadn't seen it. In the November-December issue of Atari Age, on the cover you have E.T.'s finger connecting with the top of an Atari CX-40 joystick. And inside kind of shows you how to disassemble your joystick and paddle if you want to fix it. It mentions in the Clubhouse store, the 5200 has just arrived, and so you can order it for $249.95. And then the games are range from like $32 to $40. So Galaxian, Missile Command, Space Invaders, Star Raiders, Soccer, Pac-Man are all available now. And it says Defender and Football are available in December. It says important notice, Atari 5200s are being produced in limited quantity. The Atari Club has acquired a number of these first 5200s for our members, but there is a strictly limited supply available at this time. So hurry, get those orders in. And while you're at it, you can practice the official Atari handshake. So you clasp hands as in a regular handshake. Then you lift the other person's thumb and grasp it with your free hand. Then rotate the thumb you're holding, making believe it's a joystick. Just please get consent first, because, yeah, this could be kind of threatening. Lifting up the thumb, I'm going to break your thumb or something. Yeah, um, I don't think this is going to take Kansas Fest by storm for us Atari people. The December 1982 issue of Creative Computing has a couple brief mentions of the 5200. There's a review of the ColecoVision, and in it they compare the joysticks briefly to the 5200 and saying that they're similar, but that ColecoVision uses kind of a real joystick instead of the potentiometer thing. And then in the Outpost Atari, they talk about the 5200 a little bit and ask it, is it just a 400 without a keyboard? And the answer, well, yes and no. They note it has the same chips, but for reasons somewhat difficult to fathom, the 5200 has had enough changes made to ensure incompatibility with Atari computers. And they go on to say the, the joystick controller being the biggest, but then the cartridges are also incompatible. You know, they dwell on joystick for a little bit, saying that the potentiometer 
makes better games for Missile Command, but like quick turning games like Pac-Man is going to suffer. They finished saying, whether this incompatibility is utterly surmountable remains to be seen, but it certainly would be a formidable task. And with the advantage of time, of course, we realized that a bunch of stuff was transfer- transferred from the 5200 to the 800. There's a lot of good stuff in this creative computing, but that'll be back on our regularly scheduled programming when I will go over the magazines like I normally do. In the December 1982 issue of Joystick Magazine, they have an introductory section where it goes over some of the video game systems on the market, and it talks about the 5200, saying it carries a hefty retail price of $299, so the retail price has been, like, all over the place. It started initially at three, what, three fifty, and then you know some magazines said it was going to be street price as low as two nineteen. Then the Atari Club had it what two forty nine, and this says two ninety nine retail. So anyway, it says that hefty retail price promises to be worth it, especially for hardcore gamers. It says the console is sleeker, and there are fewer cords and no annoying white noise when you change a cartridge. Then it says the games themselves are going to be the big selling point. It says sophisticated microprocessors and innovative designs will provide some of the finest graphics and sound in the industry. At least 10 carts available this winter, including the 5200 Pac-Man, which promises to be an exact replica of the arcade version. The VCS version was not, it says. Right down to the entertaining intermissions. And it says the 5200 will eventually have an adapter for VCS cartridges and a voice synthesizer. It looks to be the system to beat in 1983, it says. It talks about the ColecoVision in this same article, saying that it's going to give Atari a run for its money, providing the best graphics and sound this side of the 5200 for less money. And with the pack-in Donkey Kong, it's stunning. So it's interesting they sort of went with the 5200 being the system to beat, despite being sort of really positive on the ColecoVision. So this is one of the magazines that seems to be really focused on the home system. So they have reviews of a bunch of games, but none for the 5200 yet, since really the system's not even available when this magazine went to press. They have patterns and strategies for a lot of like BCS games and even a couple other systems like the Intellivision and the KC Munchkin for the Odyssey. KC Munchkin's an interesting story that, you know, Atari sued them and so they had to withdraw the cartridge from the market, but it remained like the best-selling cartridge ever for the Odyssey. The December 1982 issue of Video Games Magazine has a big 12-page article on the 10th anniversary of Atari. It's by Steve Bloom, editor of Video Games Magazine. It says the incredible, incredible story of Atari from a $500 lark to a $2 billion business in 10 short years. The article opens describing a food fight, and apparently Ray Kassar was in the room when this was happening, and said sort of derisively, Nolan would be proud, referring to, you know, Nolan Bushnell, of course. And he's opening several paragraphs describe how the company culture has changed from sort of the unorthodox work style that Bushnell had to the button-down pinstripe suit of the current Atari saying that Kassar's worked for several years to try to change this attitude. He quotes unnamed former employees saying that working there now is about as lively as visiting the county morgue. And then a quote from Gene Lipkin, who says, who's <laughs> is described here as the caustic former president of the coin-operated games division, saying they answer their mail and everybody's there at 8 o'clock. I mean, they have the market on pinstripe suits today. There are more pinstripe suits walking around Atari than there are on the rest of the planet. Quotes another person, Bob Brown, ex-engineering supervisor, who started back in 74, said, Ray and everybody looked stoic and conservative, very three-piece suitish. So many people have come and gone, there was hardly anybody I knew anymore. And quotes Don Osborne, the current VP for marketing in CoinOp, saying that nobody has any idea what it's like to be the chairman of Atari, that nobody can comprehend what the demand is, and that it's uncharted territory. No, No company has ever grown this fast. 
There are no textbooks to tell us what to do, and so we really are blazing the way. This is a very unusual experience. So it describes how 10 years ago, when they were starting, it was just a garage shop operation. And then Warner Brothers bought, as described here, the floundering video game company off Bushnell's hands for a mere $32 million. Much has changed. Bob Brown's quoted again saying, I think you can say that Atari was the buy of the century. I don't know of any other better deal than that. Then they start to go over the history of Atari, and this article is laid out pretty nicely that the top half of each of these pages is kind of text, and the bottom half has a sort of a graphical timeline of the games and stuff they produced. Like on this first page here, there's a computer space console that's dated in 1970, then Pong, uh, November 29th, 1972, and the infamous game Gotcha in October 11th, 1973, with the mound-shaped pink controllers, and Quadrapong in 74, and then Touch Me in 74 as well. There's more games, a couple more arcade stand-ups, and then there's a home console version of Pong for Christmas in 75. But I'm kind of getting ahead of the narrative a little bit, beginning when Nolan Bushnell saw Space War in 1969. And so that's computer space that Bushnell sold to Bill Nutting Associates. And I always thought it was Dave Nutting Associates. So, but Dave and Bill, there's, they're brothers. And I'm unclear as to when sort of the name transitioned. Most of the references I sort of remember and I find on the web are Dave Nutting Associates. But here it's quoted with Bill Nutting. And he is quoting Bill himself saying that computer space blew up the whole coin app industry's mind. And then the next year when Atari was started by Nolan, the business simply exploded, he said. So Bushnell, I guess, was the chief engineer at Nutting, and then he wanted more action for Pong, but Nutting refused. I didn't like his deal. The kind of royalties Nolan was asking didn't seem fair to me, but as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. And so now they talk about how Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney formed the company, said $500 in royalties from Bushnell that is uh, earnings from computer space they founded Syzygy, and that famous story about that name already being taken, so they chose Atari. And the article quotes Bushnell is liking to say, Atari is a polite warning to your competition that it is about to be engulfed. So he moves on to the story of Pong and Al Alcorn, who had just graduated from UC Berkeley and knew Bushnell from uh, Ampex. The article doesn't mention here in, you know, earlier in this episode, we talked about Nolan Bushnell being quoted as saying that he didn't think Alcorn could make a driving game for his first game, so he described Pong, but it doesn't mention that here, and so it says that they talk about the arcade game a little bit, and then that the first consumer product was going to be also the home version of Pong, and that to do a consumer product, they really needed help, and so that's how they got involved with Sears. Bob Brown being quoted again saying there was a guy named Tom Quinn at Sears who was the hero, he said. He gambled on Pong when he was, of all things, it says, the sporting goods buyer. He said the involvement with Sears got a little interesting in that it was sort of kind of a, you know, the, the mash of the Silicon Valley sort of free thinkers and the, you know, the corporate world of Sears. He said that one trip that Sears people came out to look at the video music, which is the weirdest product ever, Bob Brown said, but he designed it and said that the Sears guys took one look at it, asked what they'd been smoking. And naturally, one of our techs lit up a joint and showed them. And another time, they had a meeting in Los Gatos, and that everybody had their tennis shoes and jeans, and all the Sears people were dressed in three-piece suits. So for dinner that night, all the Atari people went home and changed into suits, and all the Sears people went to their hotels and changed into jeans and sneakers. In 1975, it said the wheels kind of came off in the financial portion of Atari. It said that Bushnell went for the moon selling seasonal consumer products and blew it. So even with the success of the dedicated Pong in 75, the cash wasn't there. The coin-ops weren't tearing up the arcades, and so Atari was in trouble. So Gene Lipkin's quote is saying they had a list of about 10 companies they'd want to try to merge with, and Warner was not on the list. But through a connection, he said they kind of got along really well, and they were impressed. 
And then Manny Girard was the one who kind of signed the deal. And so in October in 76 was when Warner's money allowed them to do the VCS. It talks about how the VCS was really developed at the Grass Valley Think Tank, as it's called here. And then despite a mad rush to get it produced in 1977 for the Christmas sales, the volume wasn't what they expected. In 1978, they had 800,000 VCS built, ready to go, which translates to about $40 million worth of inventory that they were stuck with. Bushnell was apparently confident they could move all that stuff in 79, that it was going to be a banner year. But apparently in the meeting in, in November of 78, it says the meeting, the annual budget meeting, proved to be Bushnell's downfall. It said Bushnell and Manny Gerard locked horns, screaming at each other for hours. That's quoted by Joe Keenan. So Bushnell was demoted from chairman to director, then Joe Keenan left and was replaced by Ray Kassar. In early 79, Ray Kassar started to make his presence felt. He froze all VCS software development. And then so this Bob Brown's research and development division was made redundant. And he's quoted as saying, When Al Alcorn told me what happened, I couldn't understand what he was saying. I couldn't conceive of Atari cutting off its future by chopping off its R&D work. It will always be my opinion that being engineering-oriented was what made Atari successful. Then it says later that year, the pinball division was forced to close. There's a quote from Noah Anglin, the engineering vice president at the time, said, Atari pinball machines were disasters, but they were also artistic masterpieces. It said Ray Kassar didn't care about pinball at all. He wanted to move to sell the VCS year-round and also establish a company work style more consistent with his own. It said Kassar never had to send out a memo detailing work hours and dress code, but gradually people got the message. After Nolan Bushnell and Joe Keenan left, People went from jeans and boots to wearing slacks occasionally, then progressed to wearing a tie, and then once in a while a jacket, and eventually everyone else did the same. Obviously, this was written from a male perspective, because there's no word on how people presenting as women were supposed to dress. The marketing focus and advertising campaign created a big demand for the VCS, which pulled Atari out of its financial hole. But then it says people really started to desert. It said most notable of the early defectors was Steve Jobs, who during his tour in CoinOp had been designing a personal computer that became the Apple, and four software designers who went off to form Activision. Now the article is approaching the current time, because in saying the company's growth has been dramatic, from less than a 1,000 employees about the time of the Warner purchase to nearly 10,000 today. It says, so massive has Atari become, the company has more than 50 office buildings in Silicon Valley, and manufacturing facilities in El Paso, Texas, Taiwan, and Ireland. There's a bunch of piling on of Ray Kassar. It says, Many observers claim that Atari is now out of touch and out of mind, that few really know what's who's making decisions at the executive level. Joe Keenan is quoted as saying that, In a small company, it's possible for everybody to know the ultimate decision maker. But as the company gets bigger, that becomes quite impossible. There are certain management styles which unfortunately make it more impossible, and maybe that's the case at Atari. He says, Ray Kassar doesn't interface very far down. Couldn't interface all the way down even if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to go very far. That's just the way he is. And then Noah Anglin is quoted as saying, Ray's a perfect guy to run a corporation. If you want somebody who bases decisions on facts, not emotions, that's him. He's strictly a bottom-line-oriented guy. The article implies Gene Lipkin and Al Alcorn, among others apparently, got large severance packages, saying both are being paid handsomely to stay at home. The article kind of winds up with kind of a where are they now. Alcorn apparently flies planes and operates a trout farm in Carmel. Steve Ritchie and Eugene Jarvis, former pinball designers, are at Williams. Bob Brown has a hardware system called the Supercharger for the VCS. You remember that tape playing enhancement that would lo- had extra RAM and stuff and you could load more complicated games into the VCS? Noah Anglin is in charge of manufacturing of the Vectrex, which it calls here is an exciting new portable game system. 
and yeah, I guess it is portable. It's like, you know, it's all, all in one. Not really what I think of as a portable system, but I guess it is. Gene Lipkin appears to be president of a venture capital group. And it says Nolan Bushnell and Joe Keenan says rewarded generously by Warner says Bushnell cleared 15 million and Keenan 2.2 million and are working together at the Pizza Time Theater Company. And they quote Keenan with a last shot here at Atari. It says, I'm actually disappointed that Atari hasn't innovated a thing since we left. If that doesn't change, Atari is going to lose its commanding position and I might be embarrassed by having been associated with it. It concludes saying Atari needn't worry for now because they've got business deals with George Lucas and McDonald's, but there is talk in the Valley about the expiration of Bushnell's non-compete agreement. And an unsourced quote says, On October 1st, 1983, at 10am, Nolan will have a game on the street. And although not known at the time of the writing of this, this is the Sente company that Nolan Bushnell bought. Apparently it was a company called Vidia that was started by some ex-Atari people, but I guess until Nolan Bushnell's non-compete expired, he couldn't actually do anything about it, so I guess they negotiated sort of behind the scenes and officially founded Sente on October 1st, 1983, which is what that quote referenced. The final magazine we'll look at here in this 1982 edition of the 8-Bit versus the 5200 is the Electronic Games for December 1982. It has a Santa on the cover and says, Is the ColecoVision the next great system? And also on the cover mentions, You can be a game designer. So we'll take a look at that. The ColecoVision article is a six-page article summarizing the technical abilities and some of the games that are available on the ColecoVision. But in addition, they have a special section called the Player's Guide to Programmable Video Game Systems, which to my ear still seems like they shouldn't mean computers, you know, stuff that's actually programmable by the user. But what they mean is stuff that doesn't have a fixed ROM, and you can change the ROM out by, by swapping cartridges. And so that's a guide to, like, sort of an overview, I guess, of the eight major systems available here in the U.S. Starting to flip through the magazine, they have their electronic games hotline, which is kind of their news section. And it, they note that Milton Bradley acquires GCE, so the Vectrex will be sold by Milton Bradley from now on. It also mentions video games go to the movies, and it says, We're all accustomed to commercials which break into regularly scheduled TV shows, but now movie theaters offer no escape. I say it's really not as bad as it sounds, though, because Activision, Mattel, and Atari have also all bought cinema commercial packages. So from a, something called Screen Vision, which has 1,600 theater affiliates nationwide. And it says, so far, ads for Chopper Command, Star Master, Tron, Dig Dug, and Yars Revenge have hit and even more are expected down the road. So that's interesting. I don't really remember ads in movies that early in 82. But as they say, if they were ads for video games in 1982, I probably would have been okay with them. They have a little blurb about the Atari Sword Quest adventure, kicking things off with the Earth World cartridge, then there's going to be Fire World, Water World, and Air World, although we know it never got that far. It says the winner of Earth World can take home the bejeweled talisman worth $25,000, and there's a picture of it. it. looks like a necklace with a big sort of star thing on it. The ColecoVision article has a bunch of screenshots, probably a dozen screenshots of some ColecoVision games, and all look like really good graphics. One of the callouts says Donkey Kong may be the best video game ever packed with a system. Compare that to the 5200's Super Breakout, and I think you'll see an immediate difference. <laughs> the article You Can Be a Game Designer by Harold Golds says plan now for a career in gaming. It says here's a peek behind the scene into a career that could only exist in the 20th century. It says let's start with the basics. Education tops the list. Some game designers have a solid technical education. Specialties differ, but focus on the hard science. It says, for example, the people that did Tron for Midway said four designers had master's degree in electrical engineering, computer science, and industrial art. They say Chris Crawford and Silas Warner both have physics, both are physics majors. 
But then it says other people come to design with different backgrounds, like English, art, and music. Also, game designing is a business, so you'll find MBAs and accountants. That says knowledge-wise, the bottom line in this profession is computer programming skill. And it talks about languages like Basic, COBOL, and Fortran, but it says virtually every arcade or video game is written in a language called Assembler, and it uses the phrase Assembler language, where I'd say like assembly language. And it gives an example of three lines of some assembly code that I don't know what processor is, is a instruction DC1, LNA, and SNA. I don't know what the, what processor that's for. It says, where do you learn about these languages? Try universities and colleges. Most offer degrees in computer science. It says, out of college? Don't worry, classes are usually available to those interested. What about commercial programming schools? It says, be careful here. These schools train people for jobs in business, not entertainment. Imagining then you have the training and it says, okay, I guess it's right time for the fun part to design games. And they say, guess again, playing video games is fun. Designing them is serious work. A quote from John Passier, who is the VP of Engineering for Bally Midway, says, Don't underestimate the planning that goes in the designing of a video game. Everyone thinks they know how to design games, but there are many, many elements to game designing, and there's no formula for creating successful ones. Silas Warner is quoted here as saying, The human interface is paramount. It's important to be a person who knows how to interact with others. And he thinks that the quote-unquote hacker, the programming addict who lives at his terminal, makes a poor designer. He says, hackers relate to computers as number crunchers, and a game is more than just numbers inside a machine. So it summarizes by saying, to be a game designer, you need talent, training, maturity, special skills, and a particular kind of personality. The best designers are well-rounded people, not one-sided computer freaks. Right now, the designer is typically an experienced programmer working alone or on a team creating a single game from start to finish. But tomorrow, explosive consumer demand, corporate competition to more powerful computers, cheaper memory, and perhaps images stored on video discs will change games and game designing into something different. It's interesting that there was sort of this you know, focus on the video disc technology, the, the Dragon's Lair kind of idea that you know, popped up for this brief moment, then went away for a while before you know, full motion video stuff happened again in, in terms of like these more immersive games. But that you know, took how many years? So they were off the mark in their projections, you know, just like a lot of people were at the time. Next, we come to the special section, the Player's Guide to Programmable Video Game Systems. This is what it said in the table of contents, was the comprehensive guide to the eight major systems, which are the Atari VCS, the Odyssey 2, the Mattel Intellivision, the Astrocade, originally produced as the Bally Professional Arcade, but then purchased by the Astrocade Company, and now released under that title. They still have a ColecoVision section here, even though they just had the big article earlier. Then our Atari 5200, and finally the Vectrex. All right, I'm confused here. Let's do the math. It said eight major systems in the table of contents, but I only count seven. But okay, here I found it. It So all the other systems had this sort of big headline, you know, and, and a little description of each. Like the like for the Atari VCS, across two pages, it says Atari VCS, colon, the most popular system. And then for Odyssey 2, it said the family system. Mattel was super graphics galore, which I don't know if I agree with. The Astrocade, the big comeback. ColecoVision riding the third wave. Atari's 5200, a super system, and then Vectrex, the programmable standalone. But in the, in the, on the page it has the Vectrex, it sort of has only like a column and a half about the Vectrex itself. And then as a subheading in there, it says the Arcadia 2001, portable and powerful. And it says this senior programmable video game system has just become available as this issue goes to press. 
I don't know exactly what they mean by senior programmable video game system, but it says it operates on DC and AC. Makes the perfect portable, it says. It says it only costs $99, but says the drawbacks are the controllers aren't very responsive, and the game graphics, though good as far as they go, are a little sparse. I'll link to an article in the show notes from IGN.com about the history of the Arcadia, and it says, to quote from it, Trying to write a chronological history for the Emerson Arcadia 2001 would be almost impossible. It was born, it died, and it was forgotten almost in the same breath. This gaming system had the misfortune of being born into interesting times. Whether it was a live birth or not is up for debate. The system came out at the same time as the much better systems, the 5200 and the ColecoVision, made the Arcadia instant bargain bin fodder upon arrival. Apparently it was designed to be sort of portable in the sense that you could bring it camping with you because it had a 12-volt adapter, and it was you know smaller than the typical console. The controllers look interesting. They look sort of like, almost like in television controllers. They have a, a sort of disc-shaped controller, but it looks like a little joystick handle could be screwed into them, and it had a keypad on the top. The Emerson Radio Corporation produced it. I said it was launched in May of 1982, and it lasted only 18 months before being discontinued. It was cloned and licensed to a bunch of different places and sold by Bondi being the, the major name that I've heard of before. But in Europe, it was sold to quite a few other companies and marketed. It doesn't say how long it lasted in other markets, though. There's fewer than 50 unique games, apparently, not all of which were released in America. It's powered by something called a Signetics 2650, an 8-bit microprocessor designed in the mid-70s, and it said that the CPU design was influenced by the IBM 1130 mini-computer CPU. So anyway, the Arcadia is, gets us up to a total of 8, so they did their math correctly. Tacked on at the end of this little column where they were talking about the Arcadia, they say, what's next for video games? And they talk about the UltraVision making its debut, and the Commodore Max. When they talked about the 5200 in this article, it was only, it's less than half a page. So the ColecoVision gets more than double the coverage. There's a, not even a single screenshot of a 5200 game. They say the initial groups of cartridges released look as, at least as good as the carts for the 400 and 800. And they say how exciting the system looks will largely depend on the viewer's vantage point. Those who already have a 400 or 800 or possibly even a VCS will not be quite as enthusiastic about the selection of games as someone who owned either a different brand of fun machine, they say, or is about to make the first video game purchase. The only games that they specifically talk about are what they say are the tried and true Atari classics, naming Missile Command, Space Invaders, and Galaxian. To be fair, I guess, they haven't actually seen or reviewed the 5200 personally. They have already done that with the ColecoVision. And so I guess that's why at this point, since, you know, the ColecoVision had been released several months prior, they have more of a feel of how that system's going to behave than the 5200, which won't have a an overview in this magazine, at least till next issue, which we will talk about in the next episode of this podcast, since I'm splitting this up into the three episodes. Next, we come to an article by Will Richardson that I can only describe as a hagiography of Fernando Herrera. It's as if it was written by Fernando Herrera's publicist. It's a just glowing, gushing article about like everything he's ever done. The first game he wrote, Space Chase, written in Atari Basic, he says, remains one of the most challenging and innovative science fiction contests ever produced. This is probably the fastest basic program ever written for Atari computers and a totally original play concept. When a program of this astonishing quality issues from an obscure programmer, the video game journalist instincts immediately take over. And it says how it's a story almost too good to be true, that he was born in Bogota, Colombia. His artistic talents evidenced at an early age. He could draw and paint and was making his own 8mm films by the age of 8. He got a degree in architecture from the National University of Colombia, finishing in the top 5% of his class. He spent three years pursuing that amb ambition before moving to the U.S. in 1970. 
And while employed as an industrial engineer for a steel company, he found time to win several chess trophies from the USCF, the United States Chess Federation. Then it talks about how his son Steve was born with severe cataracts, pronounced blind by every medical specialist, but Fernando refused to accept this judgment and set about to ensure Steve's education would progress normally. And so that resulted in my first alphabet, of course, which became the first Atari Star Award winner. Since today Fernando is sitting atop the booming market for Atari computer game software, led by a canny perception of the audience with which they are dealing, First Star Software will initially deal with a maximum of 32k memory so that the software will run on any Atari computer. Except that Atari computers start at 16k. The article goes on, His approach to game design sounds deceptively simple, but it may only work for someone with Fernando's natural genius with computers. Then it quotes him, The user is paramount. I must look at all my programs through the user's eyes. The author then says, He never thinks in terms of the system's supposed limitations, but rather how to overcome such problems. He speaks in short, concise sentences, tossing off such insightful remarks as, I don't move data, I move graphics. And it talks about the first game under First Star's banner will be Astro Chase. It says, The arcade quality space shootout features not only spectacular graphics, scrolling, and audio, or should that be soundtrack, but a technical innovation that could cause minor revolution in video gaming. The proprietary process allows the human pilot to lock his craft on course, then fire independently in any direction. Unlike past contests of this type, in which gamers could only fire in the direction of travel, single thrust propulsion, it quotes, allows players a flexibility never before available. Imagine running from an alien craft and being able to fire backwards while in the midst of a retreat. Astro Chase is a sure-fire hit. And it talks, the second schedule release is a game called Dangerous Cargo, which is supposed to be a trucking game, but I can't see that that was ever actually released. And then it goes on to this little sidetrack here. So apparently, First Star Software was set up as a co-venture between Fernando Herrera and two film producers, Richard Spitalny and Bill Blake. And the article says that you know future games are going to make more use of Spitalny and Blake's movie background, saying that Dangerous Cargo is also going to be debuting in film format sometime next year, it says. But not only did the video game not get released, but the movie didn't either. IMDb shows a bunch of films named Dangerous Cargo, but none in the time period with these people involved. But the article sort of finishes off here saying, the increasing kinship between movies and video games has only begun to be explored, and the thought of a Fernando Herrera creating a computer game based on, say, Road Warrior is enough to stir the blood of any true arcader. Fernando, meanwhile, remains unaffected by the sudden celebrity. His main concern is how to get the best possible game on a TV screen. It's a job he handles with a star's touch. And I appreciate Fernando Herrera's story as much as anyone, and you cannot buy this kind of coverage. This is amazing. This, yeah, this article is the stuff of dreams in terms of coverage in, you know, a gaming publication. Okay, so I just have to look at this super amazing, awesome game, Space Chase. How do they, how did the author call it? Uh, one of the most challenging and innovative science fiction contests ever produced. A game of astonishing quality. All right, so I got to check this out. So we'll do a little live play here. And, you know, making a big deal, this is like the fastest basic game ever. So, yeah, with basic install, the first thing I noticed about it is that there's no way to skip the opening title scene. It has this screen, you know, Space Chase by Fernando Herrera, and then this sound that just keeps playing and playing and playing, but you can't skip it. Eventually, when it does stop, it shows the, the main game screen, which is four lines of graphics one, followed by the rest of the screen, like 20 lines of graphics zero. And finally, title screen's over. The graphics one stuff on the top is like your status informational area, and then the bottom playfield has three enemy bases, which look like they're players. 
over the graphic zero play field, which is artifacting colors to generate these little blue and white sort of planets. There's a bunch of them. Each planet is like a, a graphic zero character. There's a bunch scattered around on the screen. Your player avatar is also a graphic zero character. It looks like a little spaceship, like Delta Wing spaceship. It's described in the manual. And the enemy chasing you is also a graphic zero character looking like a little TIE fighter thingy. Once you press the start button, it gives you a nice basic beep to let you know it's thinking, I guess. And then it comes up with the game screen, shows you where your ship is, where the first enemy is, where all the planets are that you've got to gather. Because the in order to like progress to the next level, you got to gather all the planets up, which means you have to like fly to them and essentially run them over. We also have nukes that you can drop behind your ship that will destroy the enemy if it is, you know, if it hits it. Or the enemy also will be destroyed if it runs into a planet. The enemy is just as fast as you, in fact, faster, because it can go diagonally when you're going straight, you know, so it covers it down and over to, you know, approach on a 45-degree angle. So it can actually outrun you. So the trick to this thing is to use the wraparound and make it travel the other direction. So if you're near the edge of the screen and hit the wraparound and pop off to the other side of the screen, the enemy will turn around and try to get you that way. So if I start it here and try to go, that was me getting a planet. Going down to get another planet. I don't know what that beep signifies yet. Maybe time, but oh, there. So that's me getting killed. And only cosmic dust is left, it says. And that's the end of the game. You get one life. I would categorize this as a magazine type-in game kind of quality program. Certainly not among the best. I mean, there's, you know, some of the analog type-in games were, you know, commercial quality. And I don't put that nearly that high. Certainly to say it's the fastest basic game they've ever seen is also, I don't know, it's nothing spectacular in that, you know, it's, it's character based. It's just, you're moving one character to the next. There's no particular advantage of, you know, the Atari hardware. It's not a bad game at all. It's very difficult, but to deserve all those accolades, I don't know that it's, yeah, I don't know that it's quite there. I mean, you know, maybe when, at the time it came out, 1981, it was better than a lot of things out there, which is possible. But to me, it's been overhyped. In the computer gaming reviews section, they have a bunch of Apple II reviews, uh, but the two Atari games they review are the amazing arcade hit Deluxe Computers Stocks and Bonds from Avalon Hill Software, which appears to be a turn-based game trying to buy and sell stuff to maximize your money. Doesn't say how that really happens. And the other game they review is Moonbase IO, which we've talked about ad nauseum in the podcast. It talks about the audio stuff and how the disc version even ships with a cassette. It says Moonbase IO has to be seen and heard to be believed. First rate production values are of the highest caliber almost everywhere. If only their packaging were a bit sturdier. And I don't know what they mean there. There was no mention of the like poor packaging except for that last little comment. In their adventure reviewing column, they have a review of Deadline, which again, Kay and Carrington reviewed in episode six of Eaten by a Gru. In the Q&A section, they have a question about the 2600 and the 5200. It says, if I own a 2600, should I buy a 5200? And will Imagic, Activision, Apollo, etc. produce games for the 5200? And one more question, would the three software companies mentioned above make cartridges for the 400-800 if I was to buy one? And the answer was, to be honest, I think another 999,999 friends making a simultaneous 400-800 purchase would have a lot greater impact on those companies' decision about whether or not to make software for them. But if you do buy one, we'll be sure to let them know just in case they were waiting to hear. And then they say Apollo is already producing cartridges for the 5200. At least one title should be already in the stores as you read this. And Ron Howard voice, it wasn't. According to Atari Mania, the Apollo did not release any games for the 5200. 
That's going to do it for the magazine coverage for this 1982 issue of Atari 8-Bits versus the 5200. There are a couple other interesting documents I found. Atari Mania has something called the POP, an advertising support document from Atari itself. I guess POP stands for point of purchase. It's it's for dealers and kind of how you're going to set up and talk about the 5200. And interestingly, it includes a price list. So this looks like, yeah, the Q4 document here. It says the 5200 regular, the retailer cost is $185, suggested retail $269.95. And then it has three more entries in the price list area. There's group one cartridges that all have a dealer cost of $21 and suggested retail $31.95. And that group includes Missile Command, Super Breakout, Space Invaders, Football, Baseball, Countermeasure, Kicks, and Soccer. And these last five aren't available yet. It says football, estimated availability 1282, baseball 483, countermeasure 183 kicks, first quarter 83, then soccer says available 1182. The group two cartridges are more expensive, retailer cost of 24 and suggested retail 39.95. That includes Star Raiders and Galaxian currently available, then Pac-Man and Defender available 1182 and Centipede available in January of 83. The accessories, if you want to buy another joystick, the retailer cost is $19.50 and suggested a retail of $29.95. And a power adapter and a switch box are $8 each and suggested a retail of $12.95. It says, prices are subject to change without notice. Products are not price protected. Products are invoiced at prices in effect at the time of delivery. Atari reserves the right at its sole discretion to accept or reject any or all orders in part or in whole not shipped as of December 31st, 1982. I'm going to read these ordering procedures verbatim because I don't understand what this means and maybe somebody can say. So it says three Atari 5200 base units or three game cartridges, period. Incremental units must be ordered in case slot quantities of three units for both base and cartridges. So does that mean three case? Like, what's a case? I don't understand. Yeah, maybe somebody who has some marketing experience can tell me what that means. Does that mean three individual things or is it like... Does a case of cartridges mean, like, you know, a box with 50 cartridges in it? I mean, I don't know. There's some more glossy sort of what look like, you know, glossy artwork for the dealers to say. It's, I guess, to like to try to drum up reasons why you should stock this stuff. A new sales opportunity for you. Five reasons why the Atari 5200 will be a super seller for you. It's like, number one, features great graphics. Number two, has the very best engineering for top performance and reliability. It's built around a proprietary graphics chip and 16K random access memory, both dedicated to producing the highest quality entertainment available. Number three, it's super exciting to look at. You know, built-in storage area for cord and controllers. Number four, the controllers have the 360 analog joystick and paddle capability, 12-button keypad, start, reset, and pause options. Pause feature freezes action on command. And then number five, it's compatible with exciting peripherals like the trackball, a voice synthesizer, and an adapter that will allow you to play all 2,600 cartridges coming soon, it says. There's another glossy brochure telling about the era and the new era in game hardware, like the high-tech design, the Atari name. This tells you the 5200 is built with strict Atari quality standards and backed by a national network of Atari service centers. And they go on again about the peripherals and the trackball, which was delivered, the, the 2600 adapter, which was, and then the voice synthesizer, which was not. And a new era in software saying how it is bundled with that super exciting game, Super Breakout, which is exactly the rage in the arcades at the end of 1982. Sarcasm alert. And it shows a page with some screenshots of a bunch of games that all look pretty good. 
Super Breakout is by far the worst. And so why they packed in that, I don't know. The idea probably wanting, you know, being that they want you to buy an additional cartridge instead of, you know, the, but yeah, the ClickVision ship with Donkey Kong and they saw what that did. It's not like this was a surprise. Interestingly, Atari Mania also has some catalogs, and one of them is from Atari UK, announcing the availability of the 5200 in the UK this summer. So clearly this was, you know, somewhere early in 1982. But as we know, of course, it never made the release to the UK, or even a PAL version for that matter. Now let's hear from Mike with a letter to the editor. This is from the June issue of Electronic Games, referencing an article in the March issue of Electronic Games. In regard to your history of video games in the article, A Decade of Programmable Video Games, I thought you might be interested in some facts concerning computer space. While Nolan Bushnell was the chief engineer on the project, the game was developed and introduced by Nutting Associates of Mountain View, California. Another engineer who should have received some credit for the hours of work spent on his own time while working full-time on another job was Ted Dabney. Ted was with Nolan Bushnell when Pong was first developed but left soon after for personal reasons. Nutting Associates unveiled computer space in November 1970 and ultimately produced well over 2,000 units, hardly a failure for a first effort. In fact, there are still computer space games out there collecting quarters from dedicated fans, even though there is no one left to service them. I'd worked with ASEM, a company formed in 1973 to own and operate computer space and another nutting associate game, Computer Quiz, in business locations throughout Northern California. From this experience, I can tell you that it was not unusual to find the coin box jammed with quarters, another sign that the game was far from unsuccessful. If there was any problem at all, it was Bill Nutting, president of Nutting Associates, was not totally dedicated to the game business and that he probably did not market it as effectively as he could have. Two interesting asides. One, Computer Quiz and its precursor, which I believe was called the Knowledge Game, had already been introduced years before by Nutting Associates. Both gave the impression of computer control. Two, Bill Nutting closed his company in the middle 70s and is today involved in Christian missionary work with his wife. I hope you found this information interesting. I believe it is important to keep the record straight. Brad Freger, Manager, Employee Development, Atari. Brad, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to write and fill in some of the gaps in our historical perspective. That was Mike Whalen of the Retro Reads podcast and staff member at Juice GS Magazine. They also attend Kansas Fest with me, and hopefully Kansas Fest will be in person this year. So that is it for the first of this three-part special on the 8-bit computers versus the 5200. There'll be two more episodes, one covering the 1983 escapades of the 5200 in this Atari 8-bit world, and the final special episode will be about the 1984 decline and ultimate cancellation of the system. And in that episode, we'll get to the review of the comparison of kicks from the 8-bit version to the 5200 version ported to the 8-bits. I have been making some progress on Omnivore recently. I actually checked in some code for the first time the other day, which is more than I can say in a long time. And I'm using this as a stepping stone to working on Omnivore, this review of Kicks. So that's it for this show. If you've ever set up a software company but couldn't announce it till your non-compete agreement ran out, you can email me about it at feedback at playermissile.com. Or if you've ever refused an interview for a magazine because they wouldn't make it into a hagiography, you can let me know about it on Twitter. I'm at Atari8BitGames. It just remains for me to thank Steph Animal for the license to use her song Dragon Swirl off the album Top Gear as the theme to the podcast. 
And oh, I also have to thank John Groover. He sent me a bunch of magazines so that I now have an almost complete collection of analogs. And then he sent me a bunch of antics and a bunch of creative computings. So thanks again. I know you didn't hear those magazines in this episode, but don't worry, John. Your magazines will be put to good use soon. But that will be after these next two 8-bit versus 5200 episodes, which I hope to get out really in the next few weeks. So hopefully you'll have a bunch of stuff in your podcast feed, and then I'll get back to our normal coverage of 8-bit magazines and 8-bit game reviews. <laughs>